0: Well, I'd like to encourage you today to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 starting with verse 32 and we're going to go to chapter 11 verse 3. So if you would as you turn would you stand as we read God's word together. Hebrews 10:32 But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Let's pray. Father, as we think through what we just read, Especially as we ponder upon those final three verses, I, I pray for understanding today for us and that you'd help us to apply all of this to our lives with joy, with conviction, with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, for the past several months, we have looked intently at the book of Hebrews. and Chapters 1 through 10 might be described as a presentation of the sufficiency and And holy character of Christ. Chapter 1 summarized his qualities as revealing in the greatest possible way the invisible attributes of God. Furthermore, chapter 1 compared Jesus to the prophets and the angels and found him to be in fulfillment of prophecy and a greater authority than all created beings. In chapter 2, he was compared to Abraham. Chapter 3, to Moses. Chapter 4 to Joshua. and chapters 7 through 10, his priesthood was compared to the Levitical priesthood of Israel and found superior. So what we see happening in these 10 chapters is that everything that Israel treasured, everything that they revered, whether it was a position of authority like a prophet or king or a priest or was a person such as Abraham or Moses, Joshua, even angels, everything is found to be inferior when compared to... To Christ, And the natural conclusion of this comparison is repeated as a warning throughout the ten chapters occurring first in chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Because if Christ is greater than, if he's greater than, and the fulfillment of everything you have come to believe in for your righteousness and your salvation, then the author is saying, then imagine what the consequences will be if you neglect the superior one who is Jesus. And again in Hebrews three twelve, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Because, he concludes, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then in Hebrews 4.1, we read, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Because the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. So let us be diligent to enter that rest. And then finally, in Hebrews 5.12, we understand why the author is building his arguments, giving his warnings throughout those early chapters. He says, "For by this time you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the teachings of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. And so he's, he's looking at the situation of the Hebrews. We saw this in our earlier looks at these chapters he's concerned about their reception of the gospel as evidenced by what's starting to happen many are starting to drift away many are leaving and so on and you get the feeling that the hebrews have heard most of the issues that he raises in chapters 1 through 10 but some of them have failed to receive that message with faith and so this is this is the author's last attempt he's doing his Hail Mary pass, right? It's the last attempt. Will the Lord bless this message that you will receive it with faith and conviction? And so he's persuasively presenting maybe what they have heard in the past, but he's he's laying it all out as a summary. And we saw in chapter 6 that the author's hope was that his readers would respond well. And you'll remember from chapter 6, verse 11, that he wrote, We desire that each one of you would show the same diligence to the full assurance to the end, that you wouldn't become sluggish and lazy, but you would imitate those who through faith and patience do inherit the promises. He says, I'm confident of better things. And friends, we have to, as we listen and as we read these chapters, we must fight for faith. We cannot ourselves become sluggish. We must ourselves inherit those who, uh, I'm sorry, imitate those who inherit the promises because the fight for faith is an intense struggle against our old nature. It's a struggle that's as difficult and demanding as some of the boxing matches that will be seen during the Olympics or running a marathon. Both of those, in fact, being examples that the Apostle Paul uses in his letters to describe the Christian life. Faith requires training ourselves in godly character, putting away the things of the world, clothing ourselves with the attributes and mindset of Christ. So today's passage, starting in verse 32, tells us something significant about the background of this letter. He says, recall the former days in which we were taught these things. That's why I say I think that they've heard these things before. He's saying, remember those former days. We we, we talked about this before. Remember when you were enduring a great struggle with suffering. You were, as we read, they were made a spectacle uh, both publicly and they even became companions of those who were suffering directly and uh, had had compassion on the author while he was in, in his chains, and even gave up their own own possessions, their own goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession in heaven. That was, it seemed, like a great response. And it was, if it is truly mixed with faith. Apparently, the author thinks this was a positive beginning, but he's having doubts because we naturally, as believers, in the Christian life, don't just start well, we end well. That's the product of God working in us who is the author and completer and finisher of our faith. He is the one who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He is the one that continues to sanctify us and perfect us to make us more and more like Christ. We are expecting to see the movement of milk to solid food, not a backwards movement. Because when we see a backwards movement, what makes us do is that we begin to question, well, what was the authenticity and sincerity of that initial response? Was it real? Or was it like the sower that cast the seed on the, on the shallow soil? And there was that instant, it seemed positive response, but there were never any roots. Now apparently some gave up. They endured that first wave of persecution, but maybe they thought that with enduring that first wave, that would be it. You know, give give my first excitement and my passionate response but then it kept coming and and maybe it was getting worse and there was this thought that well is that what Christian life is like is it truly a narrow agonizing road as Jesus describes that few that enter and tread upon that path is that really what the Christian life is like because I don't like the prospect of this being the rest of my life. I mean I know for myself how discouraging it is to try to live obediently by my own strength during even mild suffering. I can't imagine the Hebrews if if they were acting in their own strength and they were undergoing much more serious traumatic persecution among the world that they were beginning to question is it worth the cost even as Jesus once said you do need to count the cost. No one builds a tower, right? No one plans to build something large without first counting and contemplating the cost. Well, the author encourages the readers at the end of chapter 10 and says, do not cast away your confidence. It has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And he reminds them of what Jesus said. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and bring you where I am, right? So that's what is being said here, encapsulated in this. He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, there's that warning against the warning we've seen over and over and over again. My soul has no pleasure in him, but there's the hope. Right? We see it all in this very few sentences at the end of chapter ten. Kind of that, the, this view that we've had of the author all along. The warnings, the reminders, and then the hope. But we are not of those. Right? That's the rally call. Those who draw back to perdition but we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And last week, in, in looking at the new covenant mentioned in chapters 8 and 9, we learned that God has covenant with, covenanted with his people, promising to be their God. And even more, he sent his son as both priest and sacrifice so that we might have the additional promise of eternal life through, through faith in Christ. And so we have that hope. We, we, our anchor of hope rests on the sure faithfulness and promise of the covenant in God who said, I will promise to preserve a remnant for myself. I will do the work in you. I will receive the glory. But I will do that. And so when he says, I am preparing a place for you, I will come and get you, we can believe in that. And so the question as we move into chapter 11 is, is that your hope? Because it has to be. Because as the author says, even for his readers back then, he would say to you now, there is need of endurance. We are in the midst of a time of of weariness. We are in the midst of a time of, of factors that are spiraling towards disunity. We've had Destabilizing factors. We've moved to four different places off and on over the course of the last sixteen months. We're still not in apartment place. We're not uh, meeting at in a morning time like we're used to. Meeting in a in a different place. It's been hot, like eighty three degrees, <laughs> several Sunday mornings uh, a few weeks ago in here. And those are we. We discount some of that sometimes in terms of what if effect they have on us, but they're destabilizing factors. They stress us. And we've had a lot of stresses. And and I would say this is mild, obviously, compared to the persecution and torment that the believers had to face back then. And yet uh, maybe our threshold is is less. <laughs> Maybe our threshold is less as comforted and comfortable Americans, but we need to hear these same things. We have need of endurance so that we may be the ones that do not give in and give up, but inherit the promises. Because we have to believe that there is a better and abiding possession than what the world offers if we give up. So, friends, the fight for faith, this is a struggle against our old nature. And then when we add to that everything I've been talking about, we can begin to think that it's not worth making the sacrifice. But I want to encourage you, as Romans eight eighteen says, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So let's look at Hebrews 11, having had that solid foundation of chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 11 says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We'll stop there at verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are you hoping for? Is it a better and abiding possession, like the author describes, because there is a direct connection between your willingness to sacrifice and what you hope for. And there's more to these initial few verses of chapter 11 than first meets the eye. The, the Greek word for evidence in that first verse is elenkos in Greek. Some of your translations, it comes out in English as conviction. Uh, others as evidence, some as assurance. It's an unusual word, and it's difficult to translate into English because it it doesn't make sense here in this verse. I'll explain. The word evidence is normally what the translation is in other Greek books outside of the Bible, and so it it actually is as much translated proof as it is evidence. And when we realize that's likely the best word to use in this sentence and we say what it's saying is that faith is proof or faith is evidence, that's hard to understand. It's confusing. Because when we talk about faith, I think most people would usually say faith needs evidence. That's how they would typically look at faith. I need evidence in order to believe, rather than say that faith is evidence. But look at the illustration that's given in verse 3. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So when you understand something, you know it. Okay? A lot of you are studying subjects in school When you understand it, you know the lesson, you can apply the problems, and you can solve the questions. And so now in in two verses, verse 1 and verse 3, we have two words, evidence or proof and know, that seem to be making faith a whole lot more objective than maybe a lot of people would think of faith. How do we know that God made the world out of nothing? Nothing. How can we have the conviction of proof that the universe was actually formed by the word of God? Well, verses 1 through 3 say, by faith. Now, to better understand why that is, turn for a moment to the book of Romans. And I want to encourage you, as we're wrestling through with a little bit of what may be mental gymnastics as we are wrestling through this a little bit that, that you try to f- focus as much as you can on what we're seeing here Romans and, and Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 20 Paul says that the invisible attributes of God that were displayed in the creation of the world are, what does it say there clearly seen by man he writes, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made. And there's that same word again, understood. In fact, it's the very same word in Greek as we saw in Hebrews. So in Romans one twenty, Paul says that we understand the invisible attributes of God by what was made. We look at pictures taken by the Hubble telescope. Have you seen some of the new pictures of of the restored Hubble? They are astounding pictures. So we look at the pictures taken by the Hubble telescope, and we know that there is a creator who made these galaxies and black holes and Nebula. I was watching the video uh, reconstruction of the past by of the latest Um, satellite that went by the the Jupiter's moons and by Jupiter. Just astounding. When we look at those videos, when we see those pictures, when we just look outside, we know, that's what the Romans is saying, we know that there is a creator who made the galaxies. And and so what Romans 1 is talking about is a kind of spiritual sight, if you will, Whereas Hebrews 11 is emphasizing faith, but talking about the same thing. And if you put the two passages together, what it's saying is that this spiritual seeing, this perceiving of the work of God, of the fingerprints of God on the things that he made, that that order, those invisible attributes of beauty, the greatness of creation, that is evidence that God made the world. Now, I'll try and illustrate what I'm saying. I'm going to put it back into something more physical of what I can't actually see with my eyes. If I were to say, uh, I know that there is an In-N-Out burger restaurant in Turlock, and you ask me, how do you know? I'll say, well, Hope was with me on Monday, and we saw it at Turlock with our eyes. We, we, we were there, we saw it. And my seeing of that restaurant was evidence that it is there. Now, faith, faith is remarkable because it sees things that are invisible. But just as I am able to say that the evidence... That In-N-Out Burger has a restaurant in Turlock is that I saw it physically with my eyes. I am able to say that my evidence that God made the universe is that I see it through faith. So when people look at God's creation, some see color, chaos. They they see things that are not God. They just see gas and heat and all the things that, just, you know, that you'll see in a science textbook on astronomy. But others have a different field of view. They have a different perception angle of sight. And what they see as they focus in on that is not heat and light and all of those things. What they see is God. God. I see God when I look at that. What evidence can they offer that that was God? You can't talk that person out of it. It's not like, well, do you realize that the star is formed by the exploding supernova and then gravity began to coalesce and this happened over 200... Bi- That's God. <laughs> no one can talk them out of it. And so you may ask, should that be called faith? Yes. Hebrews 11 one says that faith is the evidence... It is the proof of things not seen with physical eyes. Now you may ask a second question, and a more difficult question. If seeing God's work is faith, then how do all men in Romans 1 clearly see the invisible attributes of God? And and friends, this question is really, really important. I would say it's one of the more important questions of the Christian faith. How do men and women, how can they be said in Romans 1 to clearly see these things, these invisible attributes, what Hebrews 11 calls faith, and yet they don't have faith? The answer to that is to understand what Paul is saying in Romans 1 overall. And we're at the verge of something important, so hang in there. He says in 18 through 21, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Men and women suppress the truth in unrighteousness, the very truth that Hebrews 11 says is understood by faith. In other words, men and women, because of sin, lie to themselves. They lie to themselves. They suppress the truth. They suppress faith. Now move on to verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. You've probably read that verse many, many, many times. And you may have missed the fact because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Manifest in them. When God made man and woman, He created man and woman in His own image. He gave them a rational soul. He gave them a spirit and he gave them the ability to respond to what he has made, to see the truth, to have faith. Faith was part of the genetic DNA built into Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. Because what Romans 1 is saying is that every man and woman, believer or not, acknowledges can clearly see the invisible attributes of God because God has manifested in them. But they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Do you know what that implies? That means that every human being should be, because of the DNA, that spiritual DNA, because of the way God has made us, by nature, a person of faith. That should be like the first step that we take is that we move to God. God, 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 God. That we we see God naturally in us, uh, manifested in us because of how God made us. But sin leads every person to suppress what is plainly the truth. So internally, we are made to go God, and sin goes no. That's what sin does. Sin says, you are God. Sin says, you don't need God. And then for our own comfort, because of the insanity of denying what God is made to be true, because lying is its own internal stress. We have to make up a system for ourselves to to, to continue to believe the lie, if you will. And as that truth tries to seep out through hardened hearts, we just keep pressing it down. It's why when we read about the Pharaoh and we read about the Exodus, we go, how could you not get it by plague three? Right? How how could you keep going and saying, okay, 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 I'm sorry. You guys can go. No! No! It's the same activity of sin that presses down that truth and lies to oneself. We were created to be men and women of faith. And what prevents faith from operating naturally and normally is sin. And that may seem to be a simple conclusion, friends. It may seem to be a simple conclusion of what we've done. But think about what that implies for us. Many people argue that it is faith that removes the power of sin. In other words, that we believe in God and then God breaks the power of sin in our lives. But that is not what Romans and Hebrews say. They say exactly the opposite. What they say is that sin suppresses the natural response of faith. And so God must break the power of sin first so that faith can naturally operate. That is a huge, important thing. Because it happens to be a rather volatile and controversial issue in the modern church. Which one is what first? First. Do I have faith first, and then God comes and breaks the power of sin in my life? Or does God break the power of sin first, and then I naturally respond in faith? I would argue strongly that Romans and Hebrews say the second. And so what are the practical applications or end implications of, of all of that? Well, first, faith does not just feel confident that God exists and is involved with creation. It's not just about confidence and optimism. Faith is spiritually grasping and perceiving the reality, the truth. It is the proof of God's handiwork. It is a whole new field of view and focus that sees God active in everything. And that seeing is substantial because the author of Hebrews says it is a type of proof. To those who possess it. And it gives a lasting assurance that is powerful enough to allow you to be joyful even when your possessions are taken and plundered. That's why Hebrews 11 follows Hebrews 10. Second, because God's activity proceeds, is first, when breaking the power of sin, we have great confidence in areas like evangelism. Think about what that means for evangelism. It's not, as I've said before, my persuasive arguments that count. It's not the depth of my friendships that that count most. It is the powerful activity of the Holy Spirit needing to break hardened hearts. Those hearts like granite, your persuasive arguments, if they're not accompanied by the Holy Spirit, just going to bing, bounce off. Because... That, that person has spent a lifetime suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But if the Holy Spirit breaks that heart and gives it a new heart, that means that when the gospel is preached, whether eloquently or not, whether it's, you know, whether it's only half of the whole Roman road, I forgot the other half, but you know, it doesn't matter when the gospel, when the word of God is preached the heart that has been changed by god will respond naturally the hearers will hear as jesus says in john 10 for the first time the shepherd's voice they'll look up and say god wow i didn't i they say to themselves i didn't see it before but they always saw it they just suppressed it third because god must break the power of sin in our lives first we can appreciate the message of hebrews and romans more fully no one seeks after god as paul says in romans now now we can understand it's not just those who you know were just so bad that they couldn't couldn't make it couldn't uh, end up thinking straightly enough to, to be able to accept God. No, every person, every man, every woman, says Paul, has fallen short of the glory of God. Every person is involved in being a rebel, a rebellious individual towards God. So no one seeks after God, as Paul says in Romans 3, because it is the nature of sin to suppress all truth of God It makes us understand why Romans 5 can say that we stand in grace alone. Suddenly grace alone makes sense because if God had to first break the hold of sin in my life, if he had to first give me a new heart, that was totally him. That was totally him. He came, he saw, he conquered, (laughs) as Julius Caesar once said but that's what God did to your heart. Let me conclude by reading to you a short statement that was said not to the Hebrews or to the Romans, but to the church at Ephesus. And we find it in Ephesians 2.1. It says, you He made alive who were dead in trespass and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, all of us once, conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were children of wrath, just, just as everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, Even, bringing in Romans and Hebrews, even when we were pressing down with all of our might the truth of God. How much more insulting could that be, right, to God the Creator than to say, no, I see you, but no. But who, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul's statement there in that first part of Ephesians 2 is that while we were dead in sin, suppressing that truth of 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 what God has done, suppressing faith, that the merciful and gracious God made us alive. He changed our hearts. He regenerated our hearts, not because we were inherently worthy or virtuous, but for his glory, out of his love. And the natural response is that we responded in faith at that point. And so then Paul says right after that, for by grace you've been saved Through faith. So God's work to break that power of sin in your life, God's gift from the very beginning of your life that the truth, His truth was made manifest in you, all of that is the gracious work of God. That's why faith can actually be called a gift. It's not intellectual superiority. That's not faith. It's not me, the the moral individual as compared to all the immoral individuals who grasped something that they did not and then said, I believe. Even faith is a gift of God, not of works, not even of intellectual and moral works, lest any should boast. I'm not going to boast in any way, not my physical works, not my intellectual works, not my mental works and moral works because faith itself is the gift of God. And he did that for you so that you would not boast about how you were different than anyone else. Why does God give you that new heart? The answer is given in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. God has a big plan, and you're part of it. But don't forget that you are his workmanship. You're not the autonomous individual came into it and said, Wow, I've got a great idea. God exists. I'm going to start believing and following him, because this is a better way than all the rest. No, God said from the beginning, You are my workmanship. And before you were ever born, before the world was ever created by me, I established good works for you to do. Again, part of Ephesians. That you should walk in them. That you should do them. Why? For my glory. Why? Because I'm God. And we could go on and on and on and realize that's why it makes sense that it says God is the author and finisher of our faith. Because we are His workmanship. And part of His plan for His glory. It's what leads author John Piper, to say that faith, listen to this, now given the context of everything we've talked about, faith is anchored in God's desire to glorify himself. And I think that's true. Because God created us for his glory Of all possible things, our redemption evidenced by our acknowledgement that he did make all things, that he is the glorious God, i.e. through our faith, that is the greatest way to bring him glory. And because that is true, God, as we learned last week, made an oath that by himself he would preserve his people because my faith is not dependent upon my intellect or my actions, but rather upon God's grace from the beginning and God's continued grace throughout my life as the Holy Spirit indwells me and works in me to will and to do His good pleasure. And what's amazing to me is as you work through and you start, you start pulling in all of these passages, Romans, Ephesians, Hebrews, and then the Old Testament, and you start to realize, wow, this is all a testament to God All the way through the Bible, all the way through my life, all the way through my faith, everything is about him. It's about his grace. It's about his glory. And I pray that you can have that kind of strong confidence in God and what he's doing, what he did in you, and what he will continue to do. Because you know what? For the Hebrews in chapter 10, chapter 10, They needed to realize it was never about them in the first place. This is about God. And God has an amazing plan. That's why he saved them in the first place. That's why they had faith and responded if it was true, genuine faith. And so that is such a a bedrock of conviction and proof and evidence and assurance of hope that you need to keep going. Well, I want to encourage you today that if this describes you in the sense that you have been struggling in the area of being a person, a man or a woman of faith, maybe you have been looking at the world and you've been suppressing the truth of God's. Uh, attributes and God's existence, and you've been elevating and exalting your own intellect, and thinking that you were, um, you were just fine. But perhaps as we've been talking today, that's starting to unsettle. That I encourage you to talk to me some more. I'd love to talk to you about all of this. And I want to encourage you also to acknowledge, especially for those of you in in kind of secular workplaces. I want to encourage you to acknowledge your understanding of God as creator publicly. Your co-workers, your neighbors. The Bible says, encourages, do not shy away from declaring to the world your faith and hope in God. Let's pray. Father, as we have studied today and and tried to to wrestle with these difficult verses in Hebrews 11, I pray that you would work in us to to have the strong conviction and assurance that, that rises to the level of proof with regard to our faith. Lord, we cannot be just people of optimism, people of hope that are counting on good odds that what we are seeing in the Bible and what we are saying with our lips is true. But Lord, that we are actually a people whose very sight functions differently. That as we look at what you've made, we see you. We see it. We know it. We understand it, and we don't suppress it. And so, Lord, for that work in our lives, we thank you for your blessing and ask that you would continue to walk with us, to continue to work in us as graciously as you have from the start to make us a people of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.